I'm very grateful for your kind invitation. I always like to drop in for my good friend Alain Badiou, and I must tell you from my private experience, because I know of at least five, six people who began to hate him because he had to cancel in the last minute that uh, it's not that he is not uh, playing the role of a big academic who can afford this. But hey, he has health problems, he has private family problems. No, I can say this, nothing dirty, dirty <laughs> but, but for example, he, he is really for me a heroic person, you know, for him. Uh, helping immigrants and so on. It's not this big liberal phrase. It's he adopted years ago a black guy, uh, son of a single mother who died because of AIDS. He and his wife adopted him and he spent hours and there were some, often, this son has some psychological problems, there were even tragic things. Once I visited him, I saw police in front of his apartment block, and the guy had some psychotic crisis, the son, full of foam and so on, shouting around, and but you trying to calm him. I mean, he's simply my hero at this level, you know. For him, again, helping the immigrants and so on. It's not this big politically correct stuff and then you go home. It's, he spent weekends in France uh, with this Le Sans Papier, without paper, teaching them, uh, patiently explaining to them how to, how to use what you can of the state. Because he discovered something which is very interesting that uh, one strong factor in the exclusion of those from Papier and others. It's not, it's very tragic how many of them simply do not know what are their rights. They don't even use the opportunities that they have. And of course, I'm not, and he, we are not blaming them. The point is that the system is made functions de facto in such a convoluted way that, you know, you give people a certain rights, but then you set in motion or establish a complex machinery, making it sure that most of these rights, concrete individual people, will not be able to use them. And we come here, I'm so sad we don't have time to do this, to talk what you were kind enough to mention. I'm proud to say we are both neighbors, I mean, Slovenia and Hungary, and also we are two proud members of this new tribe, this almost neo-fascist <laughs> new European countries. I don't know, I will not speak to you, but for you, but I'm more and more ashamed of coming where I come from, you know. Uh, sorry, so second point, but more about politics and all that stuff, we will connect this to cinema in the evening. Yes. I propose nonetheless not to disappoint you, I hope this will not disappoint you, if I treat you a little bit more seriously and go at least into something that will be like three quarters of a theory. About, again, this parallel between what Lacan calls plus de juillet, with all the wonderful French ambiguities, you know, because plus de juillet means more of but if you know French, it also can mean none of it. Let's stop it, you know. No more of that. 
but that's this ambiguity you will see immediately in box sense is the point. Then the surplus value, Merwert in Marx, and I would like to add, as Lacan does, and it's strange how this topic is almost totally neglected, <coughs> the topic of surplus knowledge, uh, knowledge in excess, and how the status of this surplus knowledge changes with science. So let's see where we will come. I will talk at a, at a certain point. You will be my male domina, that is to say, leather dress and whip, and you stop me. Okay, <laughs> let me begin. Now, please don't be disappointed. There will be theory. I would like to begin since, nonetheless, we are at TIFF Cinema with a well-known reference to Alfred Hitchcock. In his conversations with Truffaut, Hitchcock recalls a scene he wanted to insert into North by Northwest. The scene was never shot, and I think Hitchcock was right not to include it, because it renders all too directly the basic matrix of his work. You know, that's one of the arts of cinema for me, that like if you say something too directly, if you stage a fantasy too brutally, too directly, the effect can be vulgar. You know, that's the basic paradox, I think, of art as such. The best way to miss something is to go directly at it. But nonetheless, it's, uh, I was surprised to discover already years ago as a kid when I read the book that it's a very Marxist example in a way. Quote, I quote Hitchcock, I wanted to have a long dialogue between Cary Grant, you know, who played, plays Roger Thornhill in North by Northwest, Cary Grant and one of the factory workers at a Ford automobile plant as they walk along the assembly line. Behind them, a car is being assembled, piece by piece. Finally, the car they've seen being put together from a simple nut and bolt is complete with gas and oil and all ready to drive off the line. The two men look at each other and say, isn't it wonderful? Then they open the door of the car and out drops a corpse. End of quote. Uh, what we would have seen in this long shot is precisely the elementary unity of the production process. And isn't it clear that the corpse that mysteriously drops out from nowhere, that it's a perfect standing for the surplus value that is generated out of nowhere through the production process. This corpse is the surplus object at its purest, the objective counterpoint to the subject, the surplus product of the subject's activity. This surplus, as already mentioned, has three forms, surplus value, surplus enjoyment, and surplus knowledge. They are all forms of appearance of what Lacan calls l'objectita, the object small a, the object cause of desire. Lacan begins the 11th week of his seminar Le Nom du Père, uh, from 73-74, you know this wonderful play with words. Le Nom du Père, it's a basic theoretical insight of Lacan, very Hegelian, I claim, means precisely those who are not duped, tricked. They are, they are most in the wrong. And I think this is very deep insight that the definition of idiot 
of a complete idiot is not the one who falls into every trap, but the one who cannot be tricked. Truth is accessible only through illusion. You have to, or to put it in the terms of choice, you have to begin with the wrong choice to make the right choice. Uh, and uh, when he asks himself in this 11th session of his seminar, he asks himself, Lacan, sorry, a question in his usually arrogant way, addressing himself. Here's a quote from Lacan. What was it that Lacan, who is here present, really invented? He meant himself. And then he answers the question. He says, like that, to get things going, objecta, the object small a. So Lacan considered this his, the core of his return to Freud. So again, it's not desire if the desire of the other, it's not the unconscious is structured like a language, it's not even there is no sexual relationship or some other of these big Lacanian mantras. And Lacan emphasizes that this object small a is not just one among his contribution. He thinks everything, everything that he really invented is focused on this notion. L'objet A, object small a, has a long history in Lacan's teaching. It precedes for decades Lacan's systematic reference to the analysis of commodities in Marxist capital. And it, okay, we don't have time to do this, but it would be very interesting to see how it me means gradually exactly the opposite of what it meant. At the beginning, it was in his first seminars, early 50s, uh, 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 for Lacan, object A was simply the imaginary object, the image with which I identify and so on. Then it is closer, gets closer to the lack in the symbolic order and so on and so on. And only, again, I would say in late 60s, does he develop his, let's call it, mature theory of object small a. And here, reference to Marx, especially to Marx's notion of surplus value, it's crucial. It enabled Lacan to articulate his notion of object small a as surplus enjoyment, plus de jouir, merlus. The predominant motive which penetrates all Lacan's references to Marx's analysis of commodities is the structural homology between surplus value of Marx and what Lacan calls surplus enjoyment. Uh, the key, if we are looking for the roots to surplus enjoyment in Freud, then I think the crucial notion is the one, the phenomenon called by Freud Lustgewinn a gain of pleasure. This does not designate a simple acceleration of pleasure, like you can have sex this way, but take the drug and you will get even more pleasure or whatever. No, it, it means additional pleasure provided by the very formal detour in the subject's effort to attain pleasure. For example, an example from literature, which always fascinated me. Do you know Brecht's Meti, Buch der, uh, not Wandlungen, but Wendungen, reverses. Where, basically, what does Brecht do there? He is retelling 
the history of evolutionary movements in Europe, but he transposes this history into an imaginary China. For example, he speaks about a wise Chinese leader called To Qi, which is of course Trotsky, and so on and so on. So, our retran retranslation of these pseudo-Chinese names back into their European original, aha, we say, Totsi is Trotsky, now I guess, <coughs> makes the text much more pleasurable. This would be a nice case of Lusgevin. Just imagine it could have been done easily. Just, just imagine rewriting Brecht's book without this Chinese bullshit. Just replacing Chinese names with uh, real, as it were, European names. You get something very vulgar, common. Brecht's insights are even, from today's perspective, at least very suspicious sometimes. Like, this is not uh, popular to say today when many people still uh, celebrate Brecht, but uh, to the end, it means still 55, 6, no? He, was bothered with it, he wrote a couple of texts, which are very difficult to locate, because people try to hide them, uh, 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 defending Stalinist uh, monster show trials. He does it in a very objective way. He says, okay, maybe there is something problematic about them, but can we nonetheless imagine in what conditions this might be true? What could have pushed Trotsky towards becoming a traitor, and so on, and so on? Or, the most elementary example, how much a process of seduction gains with its intricate innuendos, false denials, and so on, and so on. It's, uh, you know, it's not just that because of cultural obstacles we do this game. Like, sorry for being made chauvinist direct, I want to sleep with a lady, but, and what I really want is just to tear her clothes off and do it, but unfortunately because of the social oppression and so on, I have to play all these games. No, it's not like that. I think that if you take away these games, you maybe get some purely biological satisfaction, but you don't get pleasure. Uh, let me, uh, here we could lose time, but I will not lose it too much, by giving you wonderful examples. For example, an example that I often use, did you see, uh, I relatively liked it, because it's kind of a <coughs> moderately left British melodrama from some 15, 20 years ago, brushed off with Ewan McGregor, playing a working class hero, this is Ewan McGregor, the old one, before he became Jedi and all the <laughs> big things, no? And it's, I always, sorry if you know it, I always refer to it because it's a wonderful example. It's a, there is erotic tension between him who plays a worker to be uh, fired and a slightly more upper class girl uh, uh, um, uh, who is an accountant for the, for managers there, and okay, they flirt and he accompanies her to her home. And in front of her house, she says, would you like to come up uh, for a cup of coffee? And he says, I would love it, but uh, I don't drink coffee. And then she says, no problem, I don't have any. <laughs> I cannot, can you imagine? It happens, apparently it happens, nothing happens, you know. Just an offer is 
rejected. Do you want coffee? No? Okay, I don't have it. So you'd say, <laughs> so what? It's to- I mean, if you take it literally, it's total stupidity. <laughs> Basically, the, the conversation really is about do you want to come up and fuck me? Yes. But my God, by the very vulgarity of what I said now, you see how much you gain by doing an empty detour. Now, uh, uh, let's complicate this a little bit more. In the same way that in libidinal economy, there is no pure pleasure principle undisturbed by the perversities of compulsion to repeat, perversities which cannot be accounted for in the terms of pleasure principle. In the sphere of the exchange of commodities, there is no direct closed circle of exchanging commodities, this what Marx called CNC, commodity money, commodity. I sell a commodity which is mine to gain money to buy with it another commodity which satisfies some of my needs. And here one has to be very careful. The point of Marx is not that this is this is still natural, this is non-alienated production because production serves human needs, you know, like, you know, at, and then the, in capitalism madness explodes. As Marx put it, CNC, commodity, money, commodity. I sell something to buy something else which satisfies my needs. Here we can say co- production still serves concrete needs of concrete people. <coughs> Capitalist formula, as Marx shows is MCM, money invested into commodity generating more money. What happens here is not just a reversal, but as Marx put it very nicely, the, the whole process becomes eternal because in CMC, exchange is just a detour so that I get at the end what I really need. But at the very, but in MCM, the moment money becomes predominant. The process becomes endless because, you know, it never stops. You you get money to get more money to get more money and so on and so on. But uh, uh, what is crucial here, I don't have time to develop it, I would like to refer to you here to a book which was now published by Verso, it's doing quite well, of uh, one of the younger colleagues of mine in Slovenia, Samo Tomšić, uh, it's called The Capitalist Unconscious, where I have, of course, as always, that's my uh, business as a grumpy old man, I am critical of that book, but I think he does this basic job very well in that book. Especially he shows that uh, for Marx, CNC, this basic zero level of not yet perverted exchange, where exchange still serves concrete human needs, that it never exists, that it's a myth. It's a retroactive myth to justify capitalism. Because you know what's true capitalist? Capitalist ideology is its renormalization. Capitalist ideology is not, oh, it's only money, uh, uh, money uh, engendering more money, no. Capitalist ideologies, it's really about people, you know. Even the most crazy speculative dance it all serves uh, satisfaction of the needs of concrete people and so on and so on. So the point is that, that for Freud, it's, uh, I hope you will get the point because here now things will start to get uh, complicated. 
it's the same with uh, simple, direct pleasure without a detour. It's exactly in the same way as for Marx. There is no immediate satisfaction in exchange, but there is always a gap where exchange becomes its own goal. I exchange, it is exactly the same movement as, again, in with what Freud calls compulsion to repeat, and the compulsion to repeat is, of course, the basic movement of what Freud calls drive. Lacan, in reading closely Freud, distinguishes in the notion of drive between its goal and its aim. The goal is, for example, oral drive, the most elementary example. The goal, direct goal of the oral drive is, okay, like child, sucking breast, getting fit, satisfying your need. But for Lacan, the true aim of drive is the very repetitive movement of satisfying it. What really brings satisfaction is just sucking the breast, the repetitive action as such. Here we have Lustgewinn. Lustgewinn precisely also in the sense of plus de jouir, no more enjoyment. Because uh, you get Lustgewinn, you get more of pleasure precisely by endlessly postponing the final satisfaction, because it's not really about that and so on. So, uh, again, the idea is that in our libidinal economy, that, uh, to put it bluntly in Freudian terms, loose principle, the pure pleasure principle, doesn't exist. It's a myth. The same myth as some direct natural exchange for Marx. From the very beginning, loose principle, that is to say, the principle of psychic activity where the goal is direct pleasure, is corrupted, eternalized, subverted through what Freud calls uh, compulsion to repeat, with a column struck. Here there is so much work to be done uh, in, re in going further from Marx, uh, sorry, from even from Lacan in reading Freud exactly. Just a couple of motives to amuse you, maybe, or to allow you to see in new light the most standard concepts, for example, death drive. It's usually dismissed as some Freudian stupidity, like, or it's kind of a half-biological term, or some kind of a nirvana principle, or I want to disappear, and so on. But read Freud closely, and I think it can be demonstrated that Death drive is paradoxically Freud's name for immortality, on the contrary. You know what's death drive? Here, I'm sorry, this is an old line of thought of mine, but I'm telling it because I think it works well. Okay, maybe this is my loose giving to resell you old stories <laughs> to get additional pleasure. No, uh, 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 or compulsion to repeat. Uh, 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 think about... Uh, Living death. This is a wonderful concept, very Lacanian one, I think. The living death. And here, sorry, to make this short philosophical exercise, in Immanuel Kant, you find an absolutely crucial philosophical distinction. The distinction between uh, negative or and infinite or indefinite judgments. A negative judgment negates a predicate. 
uh, what Lacan, uh, sorry, what Kant calls infinite judgment asserts a non-predicate. Now you will tell me, but fuck it, it's the same shit. No, it's not. And let me give you precisely the Stephen King example of undead. Let's say uh, you say about someone like you, uh, he, he, let's, you are alive. So let's first negate a predicate. You aren't dead. What does this mean? It means you are alive. No? It's logical. But, now, bear in mind, recall all your legacy of guilty pleasures of zombie horror stories, no? If I say he is undead, if you are normal, you will run the hell out of this room. <laughs> because, you know, it means he is, he is still alive while already dead. He is undead. He cannot die. You see how you get here precisely this infinitization. You kill him, it returns again and again and again. And this is what Freud calls Wiederholungszwang, uh, the compulsion to repeat. This undeadness. Uh, this is why I claim Freud should be read already against the background of Richard Wagner. Because that's the basic predicament I love Wagner, I'm sorry of Richard Wagner's operas. The typical Wagnerian hero, his problem is not, oh, I want to live, I don't want to die. No. The typical Wagnerian hero wants to die. The only way to find peace is to die. And the tragedy is how to die properly. From the first opera, first big Wagnerian opera, Flying Dutchman, he wants to die properly. He's condemned to live in eternity, and so on and so on. So again, not to get lost, uh, this denaturalization, let's call it, of desire in drive, where the point is not satisfaction, but this endless postpone, the, like, uh, here we have loose giving, profit, gaining pleasure at its purest, when the very endless postponement of satisfaction brings, generates the additional pleasure. And uh, although I'm often in polemics with her, but here I would advise you to read, uh, she's not stupid, uh, Judith Butler, uh, in her best book, I claim, it may surprise you, uh, Psychic Life of Power. She has a very good chapter on uh, Freud, reflexivity, and so on, where in a wonderful way she isolates this fundamental Hegelian dialectical reversal. She says that fundamental mechanism described by Freud is how repression of desire always reverts into desire of repression. You know, desire is not simply, or this is, for example, the, the basic uh, mechanism of obsessional neurosis. <coughs> Uh, the problem of obsession and neurotic is what? You are, let's say, I simplified, of course, traumatized by some illicit pleasure. I want to do that. I will not name it. I'm criticized enough for being a uh, fascist and so on. Imagine something really dirty. You cannot assume it. So the obsessional neurotic or compulsive strategy is to invent rituals to deny, to oppress, to give, to... to keep this satisfaction at a distance. But you know what happens? You then start to enjoy perversely these uh, uh, defensive rituals themselves. 
And that's so important to bear this in mind because already through this simple insight, you can get rid of this all pseudo-postmodern stupidity of Lacan as a poet of non-satisfaction, lack, uh, jouissance, full enjoyment is never here, it's castrated, it's on, you never get the object, or the primitive Oedipal version, no woman is really a mother, you know, we always, we men in so-called normal sexuality, uh, which for Lacan is not normal, and so on. Uh, we, we always, but no, but, you know, Lacan, and this is where psychoanalysis begins in exact parallel with Marx uh, again. Lacan's premise is not just this tragic negativity. We have to heroically confront, assume the void of desire. Desire is a, a, a gap. No object can satisfy it, and so on and so on. No, the first complication of Lacan is uh, Okay, no woman is a mother, but we have to add even mother herself is not the mother, you know. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, what I want to say with this uh, is that Lacan's point is not just this negativity, but it's also the opposite one. Uh, full in enjoyment, it's not just something that we cannot ever get fully hold of, that forever evades. Much more tragically, it's also something we cannot ever get rid of. It insists, it remains, it haunts you. The more you erase it like the tragic, and believe me, I know what I'm talking, if there ever was an obsession on neurotic, it's me. The more that through rituals you want to get rid of it, the more it haunts you. And now, uh, to give you some example of this, uh, I will... Uh, give you two examples which are very problematic. I want to live through this, uh, 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 this pleasure of being a little bit politically incorrect. I find this loose giving in its perverted way as ideological category with in many, in some predominant politically correct discourse. Where is, because for example, I was always suspicious of this endless will to self-humiliation of white, liberal, politically correct people where they have a couple of dogmas. The one is whenever something horrible is happening in the third world countries, we must be somehow guilty, no? There is, you remember, you are too young, many of you, 20 years ago, big ethnic slaughter in Rwanda, Hutus, Tutsis, oh, it must be an effect of uh, 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 post-colonialism and so on. I mean, I'm not saying this is not true, I'm saying something else. I'm saying this, how uh, now are we Europeans, uh, masochists or what? Why are we doing this? I claim the Freudian answer is uh, giving. Where is the giving? Uh, it's so easy to detect. First, in this way, by insisting that if the ethnic others, those that we consider primitives, whatever, uh, by insisting that we are always guilty, I claim it's an inverted version of white man's burden. You know, in the old times, we white men had the historical task of taking care of other races which are more primitive and so on. You know the disgusting story. Now it's as if they want to say, well, if we cannot be that, at least we can be the big guilty one. 
Why? What's the profit of us? The profit is that we are the only active agent who know it. We, we patronize the others because uh, I will uh, develop to you this patronization at another level. Uh, did you notice how, I don't know how you do it here in Canada, but in the United States I notice this all the time. Just ask a white politically correct liberal, how does he relate to uh, asserting one's national identity? I notice that you have a clear hierarchy of permitted, not permitted. The further you are from white Protestant, possibly men, the more you are allowed to assert it. If you are Native American, but I hate that term, Native American, and some of my India, I proudly call them then friends, hate it also. You see, this is how, this is where politically correct changing names doesn't work. An, a Native American friend of mine that I met in Missoula, Montana, told me openly, uh, uh, why? I don't want to be a Native American, because the opposite of nature is culture. So we are Native, you are cultural, or what, my God, and so on. And she told me a wonderful argument for re remaining, for uh, sticking to the name of India. Maybe you know my joke, but it's wonderful. He said, at least if we remain Indians, our name is et an eternal reminder of the stupidity of white men who thought they are in India, you know. No, they are, they are... I love those friends because they are so sensitive about this falsity of celebrating in an ecological whatever way the others. Like this friend of mine gave me a study he wrote, he's a doctor, demonstrating how Native Americans burned more forests and killed more buffaloes than all white men together. Is he crazy? No. He did something ingenious. He detected very well the racist patronizing undertone in this, you know, we white people just totally <coughs> exploit nature, but natives have an organic relation to nature, uh, and so on and so on. For them, this is something... That, so, uh, that, so let me go on. Okay, they can do it. Blacks, roots, search for roots, their identity, they can still do it. It's okay, no? Hollywood loves it, Alexis Haley, the disgusting Italian TV series, Roots, you know. Because we white racists, if we are, insofar as we are, we love black people to search for their roots. Which means they stay there, no, they search for their roots. We white are, of course, the only truly universal and so on. Then with Italians, hey, hey, hey. You can do it, but not really, no? Problems began. <laughs> German, Swedes, so-so, but if you say we white Anglo-Saxons, which I'm not, want to assert our ethnic roots, you are a fascist, not or whatever. And uh, of course there is a lot of truth in this, that usually this white assertion of our identity is racist. But I want to say something else, that this prohibition is, why is it false? Because at the same time that we apparently humiliate ourselves, there is an incredible lust gain, gain of pleasure. Because precisely because we are not allowed our own roots, we are the only ones who really have a universal position. We are the one, the neutral ones who can allocate all of our, you know, we are exempted the only true universal subject. That's at least, uh, uh, that's my, uh, that's my uh, problem with it. And it's the same, this is again what is bringing me uh, such a, uh, uh, so many trouble. Uh, 
also in this moralist, instead of doing something in Europe, we have all this moralist protest, Europe is losing its heart, not receiving more refugees, incidentally, I think Europe should receive more refugees, absolutely. But in a much more organized way, for example, just, I don't know if you saw uh, the news, the latest one, I tend to agree with it, a very nice proposal from Germany, that EU should reserve at least 10% of its funds for taking care of refugees. And we are talking about enormous sums of money here. No, no, it's so, uh, it's so popular now in Europe, uh, now to claim Europe is regressing into barbarism, uh, uh, it's becoming a new concentration camp, and so on and so on. What's my problem here? Why are they doing it? Because I think that uh, I observe with horror how those who complain the, the moralistic satisfaction of the beautiful soul that they find in it. Liberals love to write now comments on, my God, Europe is getting fascist. Uh, you know, like it's, it's their moral superiority which is asserted in this way, instead of simply doing something. Doing, for example, what here Bernie Sanders, here, down there, okay? <laughs> Bernie Sanders is doing, you know? I, I mean, you know why I admire Sanders? Because with all his limitations, compromises, and so on, he did something that this politically correct cultural left was not doing for decades. He found contact with so-called ordinary people who are usually the social base of populist right-wingers. This is an absolute miracle for me. The, the, the social base, which is the very base of Bible Belt, he got, and this is, I think, the crucial task, not this arrogance of our superiority and so on and so on. And so not to understand me, if by political correctness you mean we shouldn't humiliate other races through or through, uh, no, through openness, tolerance and so on, of course I am totally for it. But I'm just saying that, and that's how ideology functions, even words which may appear to be positive, progressive, can function in an ambiguous way. That's why, for example, I'm absolutely suspicious about words like harassment. Of course, I'm totally against uh, uh, sexual harassment. I mean, I'm a madman. I'm for death penalty. No problem. Kill the rapist. <laughs> but but uh, uh, when we talk about harassment, you know what bothers me? I notice systematically in the United States the class dimension of harassment, although they would never have said it, but it's usually white academic liberals using this, uh, who is experienced as harassing? It's mostly lower class, uh, lower class white people or those who are considered too vulgar, who talk in a vulgar way, are sexist in a vulgar way. So in a way, harassment, the way the term is effectively used, I claim, has an incredibly strong component of, of this, don't trust your neighbor, you know, remain at a distance. When do we, I mean, you know who knew this? I met him once in a cafeteria, he's a wonderful guy, uh, Spike Lee, in his, which is film before his big biopic, before Malcolm X, uh, 
uh, I think where, where he deploys in a wonderful way this idea how you know you, we love blacks but and then but we feel you know but do they have to play this was done 20 years ago those big boom boxes their music is intruding their food smells bad and so on and so on that's the reality of harassment that's for me the suspicious aspect of harassment or another example uh, 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 tolerance I wrote a book in Europe here it would be prohibited uh, a plea for intolerance it's obvious for me why is this this is not neutral fact that we almost automatically translate problems of racism into problems of tolerance. But my God, this is not self-evident. Make a simple experiment. Go to uh, Google, copy big speeches by Martin Luther King and search in them for tolerance. You practically don't find the word. He would have felt obscene if you if somebody would read him like white people should show more tolerance for black people or whatever. No, the problem with tolerance is I think that first it culturalizes the problem. You know, all of a sudden problems are not economic, legal, but why are we traumatized by other races? What are the fears deep in ourselves that we are really uh, uh, escaping from and so on and so on. So, you see, here things get really here things get really complicated for me and here again you find all different ways of obscure lust giving we should learn when we are dealing with racism and even with critics of racism we should learn the old lesson of Adorno he saw this clearly already in the late 30s in a wonderful short text about the structure of fascist propaganda how uh, beneath all this rhetoric of renouncement enough of decadent pleasures sacrifice yourself for the country all of fascism functioned in this way that officially it's prohibition secretly it offers you some obscene pleasure carnivalesque pleasure usually like let's beat the Jews, let's rape women or whatever even I think it's crucial sorry if I repeat my old examples to read in this way Ku Klux Klan I read some good books describing uh, everyday life in United States in let's say when was the golden era of Ku Klux Klan in 20th century I think the 20s no yes in official it was Catholic Church white race predominance but what was the reality of Ku Klux Klan? It was the obscene Lustigevin, like, it's Saturday evening, guys, if we are white, let's gather, let's hang some black guys, let's rape some black women, and so on, and so on. This is, I think, absolutely crucial. Without this Lustigevin, without this surplus pleasure, an ideology doesn't function. That's why, incidentally, I am deeply critical of uh, those leftists there is something of it even Tony Negri who celebrates carnival, wonderful social hierarchy is cancelled, the poor are the rich king is a beggar and so on yeah but there is also a terrifying uh, totalitarian uh, carnival and you know who is the big theorist of carnival, Mikhail Bakhtin the Russian fellow traveler of formalists but you know what I heard now from my Russian friends before World War II, 
he survived the purges because he was happy to live in province. They put him into some small library in Kazan. And when he was writing his book on François Rabelais, which is his book apparently celebrating Carnival, he took many notes. They now found these notes, and they were shocked to discover that the secret model for Carnival for him was not some, I don't know, public festivity and so on, but KGB, Stalinist purpose, Gulag and so on. This is Carnival at its purest. Today, you, haha, today you are maybe secretary of the Central Committee, tomorrow you are English spy in Gulag. You know, this total reversibility and so on. And it's absolutely clear if you read uh, the best memoirs of Gulag and of uh, Auschwitz, for example, Primo Levi. Auschwitz was a carnival at a certain level. It was, it began, the carnival began with Arbeitsmacht frei, you know. This, this is for me a carnivalesque statement. It's immediately inverted and so on. Even Gulag, incidentally, if you want to learn about Gulag, ignore Solzhenitsyn, read the real guy, Varlam Shalamov, Kolimatez. He's the authentic one. But what I wanted, what I wanted to say is that I'm really sick and tired, and this is, I think, the tragedy of the left. They love this carnivalesque moments, you know, oh, people explode, hierarchy is over. Isn't this getting boring and so on? I, the big problem that left has not resolved is what I call the day after. I said this yesterday, uh, as the unfortunate thing at left forum, that I use this example that I always use. Have you seen the movie V for Vendetta? Yes, you know how it ends. Crowds penetrate uh, the parliament, people take over, and then the end. As I usually say, I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery to see a movie called V for Vendetta Part 2. But what did they do then next day? For me, the true test of a revolution is not, we all cry, one million people on Tahrir Square, on Geza Square. Fuck you, I'm not fascinated by that. What interests me is when things return back to normal a week, a month later, how will ordinary people feel the change? How, you know, the difficult, it's relatively easy to do this big ecstatic explosion. The really difficult thing is what Badiou calls the work of love or fidelity to the event. To translate this explosion into new rules, new order for everyday life. That's why I like Antonio Gramsci who, you know, from the 30s onward, if in Europe you use the word new order, it basically meant fascism. But Gramsci still uses the term, he even edited a journal called Il Nuovo Ordine. I love this, that how, you know, in the 20s still, the term new order didn't mean fascism. It meant, on the contrary, the crucial task of the left and so on and so on. So again, back to my main line. We have to distinguish here, as you probably all know, between pleasure and enjoyment. What Lacan calls enjoyment, jouissance, is a deadly excess over pleasure. It's beyond pleasure principle. So now comes, of course, the basic paradox. Uh, surplus enjoyment is a nonsensical tautology because for Lacan we do not have zero level enjoyment, which is then uh, 
supplemented by some surplus. Employment is in itself a surplus. So uh, this is why I claim a little bit of social or socio-psychological, if you want, analysis, which is why I claim we do not live today really in a true society of unconstrained consumption and so on and so on. The only, this is the trick of our consumerist society, that it's extremely self-controlled and regulated. Yes, we are solicited all the time, enjoy and so on. But, and then you get a series of disciplinatory measures. Like, I mean, this is, when I meet people from some swingers or gay communities where they really dedicate their life to pleasure, more or less, I'm always shocked at the price they pay for it. But then you have to do the jogging, body training, behave in a proper way, what you eat. It's horrible. And I think that one of the reactions, populist reactions, against this official hedonism is not, oh, it's too decadent. No, I can almost understand ordinary people. They experience this, let's call it naively, politically correct, regulated official hedonism as way too disciplined. You know when I got this truth, it was, there was some obviously right-wing publicity some 10 years ago when I was in New York, I loved it. It was publicity for beef. It showed this classic, no, barbecue, family singing, uh, country songs, barbecuing beef, and then just uh, just short expression, beef, real food for real people. You know? <coughs> okay, now you can say it's a proto-fascist man. Of course it is. Uh, it's disgusting. But the subtle message was, like, do we really have to go through this over-regulated hedonism? Permit me to repeat another of my old stories. That's why one of my formating basic experiences was when I visited in early mid-90s, half illegally, it was risky Belgrade, and met them by a chance in a restaurant some probably people, strong nationalists, who were probably engaged in ethnic cleansing. And I was stupid enough to engage in a debate with them, and it was wonderful what a lesson they gave me. I behaved as an arrogant European sociologist, and try to sell them the story of escape for freedom. Ah, probably you are afraid of modernity. In modern world, your roles are not prescribed. Uh, you know, like uh, you know, all this, you know, Anthony Giddens and so on stuff. We have to reinvent ourselves, too much freedom. So you cannot sustain this. You want to escape back into old certainties. And they started to laugh like mad. And they gave me a lesson. They told me, no, sorry, it's the exact opposite. For us, modern Western liberal society is over-regulated and frustrating. Of course, they understood this, they were not theorists in an extremely vulgar way. They said, I cannot even beat my wife. I see a nice girl there, I, I, I cannot rape her. I cannot. And for them, becoming a nationalist means precisely this. I go to Bosnia, I engage in ethnic cleansing, I am free again. Don't, under, don't underestimate this. So who are today consumerists? We are more than ever afraid of true consumerists. True consumerists are three, more or less, today, I claim. Drug addicts, 
smokers, and maybe up to a point, alcoholics. And that's why we are so obsessed. I always found suspicious ideologically the oldest campaign against smoking. No, no. I'm for punishing the big companies. I don't smoke. No problem here. But just this absolute obsession, and I just had to laugh. Do you also have it here how the very people who pretend to be usually for liberalization of drugs, no? I noticed this total inconsistency. Like in some politically correct way, it was decided that drugs are okay, you know. But uh, smoking is whatever, although, my God, sorry to tell you, but I think that nonetheless drugs are generally much more dangerous than. And this absolute uh, uh, educational furor, which cannot be accounted for in, in medical terms. For example, was it also in Canada? I know that in the United States already half a year ago, companies or big airline companies decided on prohibited e-smoking, electronic smoking. And it was extremely interesting, I was shocked, to read the justification. It was not, oh, we don't yet know, maybe e-smoking is also dangerous. No, they even concede this point. I was shocked. The justification was that by using e-cigarettes in public, you publicly display your moral weakness, your inability to abstain fully from smoking, and that's why this shouldn't be allowed. So I think, to repeat some other of my old jokes, that the way this is the antagonism, if you want to put it in this way, this is the antagonism inscribed into our consumerism. It may appear to be unlimited consumerism, you know, this is the opposite of Lustgewinn. It is, you are allowed totally, but then the conditions are so, your solicitation to enjoy is so filtered through regulations and so on that it's ruined. I always have here, remember, a horror story that, for example, the examples that I always mention, you know, the dream, our consumerist, controlled consumerist dream is, yes, enjoy, but with a product where you enjoy without paying the price for it. Like Coke, but Diet Coke. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, so, sweet dessert without sugar, uh, beer without alcohol, sausage without fat, and so on and so on. And even in sex, this is what people call safe sex, usually. You know, so I, uh, uh, like, uh, we are allowed to enjoy if it's properly justified. I remember when I took a year ago already a flight, I think it was United, in their hemispheres, the journal that you get there, there was a two-page essay celebrating sex, and it was the most de depressive text that I've read. <laughs> because all of it is one argumentation how good sex is for your body, I mean, I mean, uh, for your body in the sense of health. They say, do a lot of uh, deep French kissing. Why? Because in this way, your muscles will remain more firm, and when you will be old, uh, the saliva will not drip from your... I mean, it's so disgusting. It really, it really ruins everything. <laughs> you know, and, and this is where psychoanalysis can do its job today. 
you know, the standard story is, oh, psychoanalysis, it's old-fashioned, Victorian, we don't have no prohibition. No, already if you read properly Freud, his problem is not we want to enjoy, but a prohibition, social prohibitions <coughs> that we internalize prevent us from enjoying, so the function of the psychoanalyst is to enable you to get rid of these prohibitions so that you can do it. No, as Freud knows it very well, the true problem is not a father who terrorizes you, prohibiting you sexuality. Such a father is usually a good father. Why? Because you normally, you rebel against him and so on, it works. The true problem is the father, and now I will be intimate, believe me, I know what I'm talking about, I had it. A father who, I remember when I was 15, my father came to me, are you a true man? Are you attracted to girls? Should I show you how? Do you know how to do it? And so on. Believe me, this caused big troubles and so on, you know. So again, uh, the situation is here, uh, the, uh, so again, the big paradox Freud is struggling with is not this simple one, uh, social norms prohibit enjoyment, so we have to get rid of them or replacement with different norms. The big problem is why what Lacan calls the superego injunction to enjoy, sabotages enjoyment in the most efficient way. Because I claim the classic authoritarian, moderately authoritarian society works so-so, I'm not celebrating it, but uh, there, there is always a limited space for enjoyment open to you. As Lacan puts it very nicely, every, in every person of, every figure of authority always allows a space, a small niche. I don't see you there. I don't want to know what you are doing there, but discreetly just do it there. Even, and I check this with my Jewish friends, by Jewish friends I mean people who really know about the Bible, that even in, in, in the Bible you find this, you know the Ten Commandments, which is this, the first of the second, do not celebrate other gods, you know. But this is, check it up if it's a good translation. Every good Jewish specialist in the Bible will tell you. This is not what it says there. It says, do not celebrate other gods in front of me. You know, it's this, I run the public space, don't do it here. What you are thinking, but there is your problem. And, and we often, that's the tragedy of political correctness. We don't see this. Do you remember, when was it? I think two, he was still president, so it must be four years ago. The unfortunate Ahmadinejad visited United Nations and then he was invited to Columbia University. And uh, I'm no friend with Ahmadinejad. Incidentally, I was even engaged there in Iran in polemics. Remember when Musavir, who was the guy who lost elections, I wrote a text defending Musavi, and then for two days, I was told by some friends I was the main target of attack in, from Ahmadinejad press, claim that I'm, I'm paid by CIA to ruin Iran. No, my reaction was to write an open letter to CIA. Hey, where is your money if I do that? <laughs> <laughs> no, but more seriously, one thing has to be said for Ahmadinejad. 
I want that some of you know it more in detail, but two Iranian friends of mine were there. And uh, to avoid a misunderstanding, they were they emigrated from Iran. They were not. But they told me that, remember, all big media our laughed at it, made fun, how Ahmadinejad was asked, how is it with uh, homosexuality in Iran? And officially, the translation was that he said, we don't have this problem because uh, we don't have homosexuality in Iran. <laughs> and everyone laughed. It was a mistranslation, I was told. He said something much more, OK, I wouldn't say refined, but different. <laughs> His point was, we do it differently than you. We don't talk about it. We prohibit it in public space. And what you do discreetly is your problem. The message was, I, I'm not saying this is true, but I am saying what I even heard from a, an old friend of, of Michel Foucault. That my God. I'm very vulgar now. He went to Iran to screw uh, the priests there, of course. So, I mean, homosexuality is extremely expanded in, in Iran. But what I want to say, OK, let me give you another example, which I like here. I mentioned one of my books. Did you see that shitty movie, which is very fascinating, I think? It's really a movie about a religious experience today. Did you see the movie, it's horror, cheap, stupid, Project X? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so crucial about it. It's in some small town, two jerks, nerds, want to organize a big party. The, the father, family of one of them goes for a weekend to another city. And before leaving, father tells the son, listen, you can have your party, but not more than five people. Uh, don't use the pool. Don't touch the car and so on. And then the guy puts note on the web, no, come. <coughs> and then... I don't know if it happens here, but this is based on a true story in Europe, in Belgium, it really happened. In Belgium, I think 40, 50, you know, a girl invited come to a party and then 50,000 people came. Okay, something similar happens in this movie, like five, 10,000 people come, they ruin the house, they burn the car, they, the, the, the police have to intervene with helicopters, everything is wrong. Uh, What's interesting in this, this is my answer to those, I hate them, how do they call post-secular people who claim our societies are too secular, we need to enter the new sense of the sacred post-secular. I claim at a certain point in the film, it's pretty nicely shot, this simple stupid amusement, it's clearly that it acquires a sacred dimension. This is really a movie about a rediscovery of the sacred and not this Christian symbolic sacred, but all sacred orgies in our societies. So what I want to say is that then, yes, the absolutely crucial thing happens at the end. When father returns, and you would have thought father would explode. He does explode. He says to his son, listen, you didn't follow my orders. You will have to work hard. And then the father adds, and this is the end of the movie. Then the father adds, but tenderless, I admit it. You did have a courage to do this. I didn't expect you. You know, father plays this game of traditional authority. While modern authority, okay, let me, I will give you, I will propose you a solution for me cheating here. Just, uh, uh, to conclude with another story from one of my books, uh, what's the problem with this permissive authority? How it can be even more oppressive? It's my old story, sorry if you know it. Imagine it's, let's say, Saturday, Sunday afternoon. You are a small boy or a girl, 
and your father wants you to visit some stupid old senile grandmother. And of course you don't want to go. Okay, let's say you are a traditional authoritarian father. You say to the boy or girl, listen, I don't care how you feel. You just go there and treat grandmother respectfully, treat her nicely. That's okay, I claim, no problem. You feel oppressed, but you rebel secretly and so on. But then comes the monster, monster called the postmodern, whatever you call him, permissive father, who will tell you something different, I know. Again, obviously I had some problems here, my father was doing this to me. His typical phrase to me would have been something like this. You know how much your grandmother loves you, but nonetheless, I'm not telling you to visit her unless you want to visit her. You can see that beneath the appearance of a free choice, there is a much stronger order. The order is not only you must visit her, but you must like to visit her. It orders you not what to do, but even what to desire to do. And I claim this is a regular trick of our, I don't have time to go into it now, of our free choice societies. We are given a free choice <coughs> on condition that you make the right choice, as it were. Okay, listen, uh, are you centralized here? Centralized in this sense, the usual thing happened. Because I wanted to say, to go through many other things, for example, how with modern science, just to recapitulate, then I wanted to pass on to modern science, where we have the same surplus paradox, which is why very nicely Lacan speaks about primordial accumulation of, of knowledge with modern science. You know, in traditional societies, you have some basic common sense knowledge, we all have it, and then you have the surplus knowledge, which is the secret knowledge religion, sex, whatever, another type of knowledge. Today it would have been New Age knowledge. But with science something else happens. Science always can work only through, a, it's not just a tradition passed from one to another brain. It's just, it works through its own surplus, as it were. So I wanted to go into this, to this parallel, how modern science functions then through what is, who is the subject of science, and I wanted to end with, uh, I wanted to end with, where are we today with symbolic authority? Is it true? Because there is a certain image of where our societies are moving. That was to be the leftist conclusion. Where they say in modern capitalism we no longer have authorities, uh, that Oedipus is past. We is just usually the term used is generalized perversion. We are just thrown out like crazy, running from one object to another, <coughs> hyperactive all the time, like all prohibitions are over and so on and so on. Even my original teacher, the nephew of Lacan, Jacqueline Miller, unfortunately bought this story. How? The new century will be the century of the real. It's no longer Oedipus, no longer symbolic construction. It's real outside the law, and so on, and so on. I wanted to oppose this radically, claiming that no, this idea of the crazy free circulation of capital, real without law, uh, still covers up prohibition, covers up a fundamental antagonism. And you know, 
this to conclude with a problematic statement, if you allow me. Okay, no, now I will do my dirty trick. I agree with you, I've talked too much, debate. So, okay, debate. I ask myself, <laughs> what did you want to say in the remaining? <laughs> Don't be afraid. I wonder if you will agree. I will conclude with uh, how this same topic of how to deal with excess, real, outside law, we encounter it. Do you also have them here? How do you call this? Okay, segregated toilets problem. Let me make it clear what's my position here. Of course, I totally support it in the sense of uh, ending this last segregation and so on. Just beware that you will not get out of it what you will expect. You know why? Let me say it. You know, the first thing to note is that it's not simply that our societies are progressing. I mean, I read this even in a cover story of Time magazine. Everybody knows it that. On the one hand, in our societies, call them developed, whatever, Western, I don't care, more and more you have abortion, women's rights, gay marriages, whatever. But you know, as a maybe reaction, maybe not, in many of the third world or other countries, you have more and more homophobia and so on. And this is a crucial thing to understand. Uh, now you will say, this is because these countries are poor and so on. No, let me give you a fact which may be so surprising. People usually try to account for this new populism by people feel exploited, poor, blah, blah, cheated by modernity. Uh, but look at a country like Poland, where I have good connections. It's maybe the only, up till now, true economic miracle of uh, post-communism. You can say with other countries that they screwed it up and so on, but Poland, in Poland, really, the standard of life went up. They never had it so good. And still, you have now an incredible hardline reaction. Like, my God, you got at one public demonstration almost one million people demonstrating against abortion. And wait a minute not just against abortion, it's already outlawed. They even want to close these last loopholes, which are, abortion is now, I think, permitted in Poland if mother's life is in danger, if it was the result of rape, or if the child is, uh, how do you call it, uh, freak, ill, distorted, so that it will probably die. Now they want even to close this loophole. So you cannot explain it in this simple economic sense. But what I'm saying is that this is one poll. And in Europe, it's very funny to observe this struggle. The one poll that I call politics of new sexual difference, which means how maintaining traditional hierarchic sexual difference is perceived as the central issue in escaping today's decadence in reconstituting a new society. So we shouldn't too much make fun of those primitives, Boko Haram, whatever. Boko Haram is the, in northern Nigeria. Now, this is the clearest example. It's very paradoxical. You have a big movement. They want to reconstruct all society. The basic premise, Boko Haram. No Western education for women and so on. And the thing is very sad. If you read the statement, I did. I even met some of them. They consider their fight as anti-colonialist fight. 
they claim from our everyday experience, the basic effect result, the most destructive result of colonization of our countries is the disintegration of our traditional communal structures. So they claim this is where it begins. We have to, the, the, the first move in fighting anti-colonialism is to firmly re-establish sexual hierarchy. The first thing that made me suspicious is how all the big business enthusiastically supports it. You know, like Tim Cook on Apple said, oh, we should, uh, well, it would be better maybe for him to do something for slave workers of Foxconn in China. But you know where I see the problem in this? Uh, I want to reconstruct something that may be called the primordial scene of transgenderism. And it's totally authentic experience. They always mention it. Like, you come to the, okay, you have certain needs. <laughs> you come to the toilet and anxiety. You cannot recognize yourself. Like, you may be determined socially as a man, but uh, sorry, I don't recognize. I'm not that, I'm not that. Well, uh, uh, for Lacan, the first note here would have been that uh, it's always like this. Okay, not to such a degree, but sorry, maybe I'm a pervert idiot here, but quite often when I go to a toilet and see gentlemen, I, I, am I that? <laughs> I mean, and this I'm not making just a joke here. For Lacan, sexual identity is ultimately always an escape, a, a desperate attempt to cover up a fundamental anxiety. Am I that or whatever? This is why for Lacan, Subjectivity is subject. Sorry, no, but just to go on. And uh, <laughs> so, you know what would have been my solution? It's a little bit funny. You know the three. You know, uh, uh, okay, with other ways, not excrements. You know, I noticed in your country probably that when they try to, uh, they try to put for different ways, different no, to recycle. You have, for example, in my country, you have paper, plastics, organic waste whatever, and then I noticed you always have another one which is waste in general. And it's a wonderful Hegelian paradox, as if the universal dimension must appear aside as another particular. That would have been my solution, if you ask me. When women general sex, sex as such. Why? Because you know what's the problem from Lacanian theory? Okay, you can disagree with the term, but when Lacan speaks about what he calls symbolic castration, he means precisely this fundamental anxiety and is as if by way of entering sexuality, I am deprived of a part of myself. I never can find myself in it. And I think the disappointment maybe of Transgenderism is that if you neutralize it, that you will get rid of it. You will not get rid of it. I claim that this type of unease about who am I is constituted. They they think they will they will get too much from that from that operation. So uh, I my solution would have been, of course, we should do it, but uh, 
no, my solution would have been three dogs, if you ask me. Because it always works like three. True antagonism is never double. It's never me and them. Antagonism always fails, and there must be a third. You know, it's like, this is the old Hegelian lesson. Whenever you try to categorize something, you always have one paradoxical category, which basically means all that that doesn't fit in any of the previous categories. Like, isn't it clear that with Marx, my old example, I'm playing with your nerves. <laughs> <laughs> isn't it clear that with Marx, what Marx called uh, uh, Asian, no Asian, that, that, how is it called, Asiatic mode of production? It's not a concept. Marx theorized uh, 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 primitive tribal societies, whatever you call them, uh, slavery, uh, feudalism, capitalism, and whatever the shit, if anything at all, that come afterwards. Then he noticed that there are social formations which don't fit to it. And he created the category of Asiatic mode of production. But I think the only true meaning of Asiatic mode of production is all those societies which do, do not fit the other one. And this is crucial symbolic operation. It's also crucial for racism because the other in racism always functions like that, but I talk too much. You should yes. stop. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, ah, sorry. No no no. no, no, no. No, no, this is not what you think. It's another. Are you somehow connected? Because I really had a whole line of thought. And I feel that I cheated. So is there a master here? Are you? Sure. You can give us the... Now I make a racist remark. Are you so bad in Canada that crazy guy from my decadent part of you that is your master? <laughs> they don't, they is there a way that I send you the file? Yes, it's possible. And you address him and you know, because it seems to me nonetheless that you came here expecting to hear more of this and I feel obliged to. So let's do it like this. So that you know he or the other guy or who are here, you, the salami guy, sorry. <laughs> Whatever, okay, we'll do. Thank you very much. Sorry. So, unfortunately, despite Vijek's best efforts, we still have time for questions. My aim was to be able to say with all hypocrisy, I'm so sorry that we no longer have time for debate. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so who wants to start? Please. Okay. Please. Um, oh, so no, yeah, no. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, so you talk about um, like borders, and recently there's been a lot with the Syrian refugees, and I was watching a CNN broadcast the other day, uh, and there are all these protests that say borders kill. And um, I was just wondering what your thoughts would be on that in terms of like national identity, and you're talking about gender identity, and how to both um, live with borders that are not uh, malicious, but also exist like as a in a nation in a nation or as a national identity or something like that, um, because it, it yeah so yeah I see I see you know my problem is this one at least. I don't know about the work situation, although I'm noticing that it's not just European problem, it's happening all around the world with violent consequences which are not properly reported in our media. For example, as we know now, almost half of Zimbabwe is in South Africa. But are people aware that there are many violent acts of poor South African workers who feel that, you know, they are stealing 
Zimbabweans from their job, not to mention China. In the whole of China, 10, 20 million people. So I think this is our future for uh, economic reasons, global warming, or even natural disasters. Let me tell you something. My good friend Jean-Pierre Dupuy, the French uh, theorist of catastrophes, he's a member of some official organizations, so he was, when Fukushima happened the day after he was there. And he told me, do you know that it was kept secret, but for one day, the Japanese government thought that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area. How? Where will they go? And so on. So we will confront, and I think it's absolutely crucial to do it in an organized way. Here, all these misunderstandings emerge about my role here. I think that the way it was done in Europe was totally catastrophic. First, that they allowed, I more and more, and even this is based on some of the rumors that I hear from my friends, diplomats in Brussels, that it was done consciously to secretly promote the right-wing anti-immigrant agenda. You know, it was done in this chaotic way. Tens of thousands every day through Greece, uh, Macedonia, Serbia, Slovenia, and so on, as if they wanted to provoke the backlash. For, I think my solution would have been absolutely even more immigrants into Europe. I always repeat this, the true threat to Europe are those who present themselves as defenders of Europe today. Like, would you like Europe where your beloved leader, Viktor Orban, or the same leader of... If such people take over in Europe, this is the end of Europe, my God. No? So, uh, this is not... A, what I'm saying is that, and this is the tragedy of European Union, maybe it's the end, the same thing could have been done in a minimally organized way, which means, I propose even using the army, not to fight the refugees, but establish on Libyan coast, Syria, Turkey, big centers, process them, airbri uh, how do you call it, airlifts or whatever. It could have been done in a much more efficient, simple way. The result of this chaotic way is that now, now after this experience, in every every more or less European country, if you were to hold a referendum, it would be mostly around two-thirds against the refugees. And there it's very difficult. There I had a conflict with my good friend Varoufakis, who said, oh, democratize Europe. I say, okay, but you must do something more. Because if you just render decisions in Europe now transparent, democratic, it's very bad news for refugees. For example, I had a debate in Germany when I defended refugees, and then some right-winger in Berlin, big debate, some right-winger attacked me, said, but you pretend to be for democratic transparency. But then he said, listen, Angela Merkel made the big gesture, come, come. Over one million people came. This is a big change in Germany. Where is her democratic legitimization? She must have known very well that the majority is against. So what would be your answer here? My answer is extremely brutal, but very problematic. Angela Merkel was right. Democracy, authentic democracy, does not mean simply you follow the crowd. Fuck it. I'm ready to say this. Because again, it's very sad news, but democracy in Europe at this moment, a true politician doesn't follow the crowd. A true politician does a very risky move 
even going against the majority, hoping it's a wager, like in Pascal, that retroactively it will justify itself. But only through the result of his crazy decision, it will appear retroactively that it was right that he did. So you see, I'm here, uh, and even with uh, helping Greece, that was my argument against Varoufakis. Is he aware that uh, we criticize Europe, alienated bureaucracy in Brussels, is screwing up Greece? Fuck you, ordinary people were much more against Greece. God help us, it's good news for Greece that the decisions in Brussels were uh, obscure. Because uh, I spoke with Slovene representative in Brussels. My friend spoke with the one from Slovakia and they all told the same story. In secret meetings, we were able to do something for Greece. The moment we had to speak public, we were afraid of supporting Greece because our local populists would immediately explore, oh, lazy Greeks, you know, let them eat their yogurts or whatever. <laughs> so you see, you see what I mean? Uh, I claim that... Uh, how should I put it? Uh, it's it's I not not even only for pragmatic reasons. I know that some people sympathize with refugees like they are almost communists today because they are coming to Europe with a radical demand. <coughs> some of them say it openly. I almost like it. Their demand is: you claim you are a society with open borders, so we have the right to go into whichever country of Europe we want, Norway, UK, and the state there has to take care of us, somehow. Okay, it sounds nice, but what does this mean empirically, concretely? This means to be extremely brutal, that the only way to do this is to abolish democracy in Europe. What would be your solution here? I, my solution is some middle path with element of authoritarian support for refugees. Don't count on popular support. This is tragic news. The result of refugees is, you. Uh, we, we are now all happy. We just squeezed out that the Austrian guy was not uh, elected. This would have been horror, because for our city countries, Slovenia, Hungary, it's normal if our guys took power, but you know, that uh, Freie Demokraten what in Austria, that would have been the first case in a the veil of big Western country that a true right wing. You remember Yukip Farage? I met Farage incidentally at the round table, my friend, <laughs> the anti-Emir the, the, uh, there. Or Marine Le Pen, France, and so on. It's a horrible thing that is going on. One shouldn't, one shouldn't joke here. That's all I'm saying. For example, people accuse me it was such a misinterpretation I read on uh, YouTube this morning but, that I said, there are murderers, rapists, and thieves among the refugees. My point was very simple one. When one million of people come, of course there are. What did you expect? Let's confront this openly. The worst thing, I explicitly said that the problem is how to create space for more refugees. And the worst thing is to idealize refugees in Frank Capra style, you know. Oh, but they are really poor people, are good people. And these guys who claim this normal, don't they see, don't they know what is poverty? 
Poverty is not a noble thing. You know, this is what we learn, this is why they are worst ideology. Frank Capra movies, as if poor people are authentic, friendly. Poverty can ruin you ethically also. Poverty makes you brutal, survivalist, and so on and so on. And also I hate it when people reproach me, you don't want to open your heart to refugees. I said, of course not. I don't want to open uh, our heart. The problem is to open our doors to get them in to leave. I hate this moralistic pressure, which I think serves just to retain our beautiful soil and avoid confronting real problems. Real problems, what is happening in uh, African and uh, Middle East countries where refugees are coming? How are we, Europe, economically co-responsible co for it? Whenever it's interesting how all those countries from which refugees are coming, with the exception of Syria, but this is because it's got into it, are not really simply poor countries, but are poor countries with some national resources fully included into Western capital and so on. Or let's. Sorry, you have to interrupt you. Sure. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't answer you. <laughs> <laughs> Please. I'm originally from Pakistan, which is much further right of Slovenia and Hungary. Yeah, but sorry yeah. to interrupt you, then I will let you speak immediately. You know, I sympathize with you, even my Indian friends are telling me that, you know the shitty movie, Gandhi? <laughs> Gandhi, you saw it. Yeah. It's totally unfair towards you Indians like to put all the blame on Gina, no? Mm. But it was a much more complex game in 48, 47, where uh, <coughs> Gandhi himself, his hands were definitely not clean also. For sure. You would agree, no? <laughs> okay, sorry, let's go. Okay, yeah, I'll you on this part. Uh, but, okay, so I, I just wrote my question down so I could be more coherent because I tend to fumble. No problem. Okay, so I have experienced working as a executive producer for a Pakistani news channel for 15 years almost. And my time Pakistan news channel in yeah. Pakistan, yes. Yes, yeah, So my time in the so-called fourth pillar of democracy uh, left me severely critical and bitter as I have witnessed narratives change much like the Orwellian flip-flops in 1984, mm. uh, dictated by internal corporate interests or the pursuit of capital. Yeah. Um, my question is, within the context of the zero institution and post-politics, what is your view on the normalization of spectacular statements like uh, the Muslim ban, um, so that it becomes a point of discussion amongst pundits and trickles uh -huh. down? You mean Trump, what he said? That yeah, I mean, yeah. okay, so, Whatever. Are you aware of what you asked? <laughs> <laughs> Three hours talk. Just <laughs> okay. Uh, of course. Uh, now let me begin with something problematic, for which I am often attacked. Uh, first, no doubt, Trump is uh, like disgust embodied. You know that. But I find him interesting because not because you know in Slovenia Trump is very popular. You know why? His wife is Slovenian. Um, Melania now, so, uh oh, we'll be in the White House. <laughs> no, but for seriousness, uh, I think Trump is a filthy populist opportunist, but whenever he makes concrete proposals, commitments, they are quite often much more ambiguous. Did you notice that Trump was the only Republican who said something minimally reasonable about Middle East peace process? that we should also listen to the Palestinian side and so on and so on. Trump said we should start seriously negotiating uh, with Putin instead of justice, warmongering. Trump said he's in principle for a rising minimal wage. 
and so on and so on. So I think if you ask me, I agree with, who was the guy who was the uh, Congress leader? Uh, John Boehner, who said, Ted Cruz is Lucifer in flesh. I'm much more afraid of somebody like Ted Cruz, who may appear a little bit more polite, civilized, you know. But, uh, you know, okay, and put it like this. If I were a Muslim here, I wouldn't be afraid of these vulgar types like Trump too much. Much because nonetheless there is, I hope, although one has doubts, <laughs> a certain limit to this vulgar populist appeal. I'm much more worried about people who basically say the same thing, but in a superficially more civilized way you know, acceptable for the general media and so on and so on. For example, I've written about it, it's similar to what you say, torture. For me, the true scandal is not that some people are now openly for torture. Also, my beloved Trump, I know, he said, ooh, uh, waterboarding, much more, much more. The true horror is that torture became a topic of public debate at all. The true problem is normalization of torture. And I'm here very open, not a naive idiot. I'm well aware that people do torture. Now I will go to the end, and then you can put me on YouTube and again claim that I'm a fascist. I can imagine a situation where I would maybe torture someone. Let's go into this ridiculous sentimentality. My doctor, whom I love, 10 years, is kidnapped by bad men who, and then I have someone in my hands, I know he knows where is my daughter, it's ridiculous. Maybe I would, but isn't it crucial that if I do it out of pure despair, I should become all the time aware that I did something terrifying out of despair, it shouldn't be normalized, you know what I mean? The true horror is the moment you normalize it, like Alan Dershowitz did it. There should be doctors who, who control, they check you, your heart, you can torture him like that, not too much, and so on. The normalization is the true horror. So I think that in a way, those who were skeptical about torture but accepted the debate were even worse. Because as far as some right-wing nuts advocate torture, okay, the moment it becomes the topic of debate, there we are winning or losing true battles. And there I think more and more we are uh, ethically, I really think that we are now in the last two, three decades in an era of ethical disintegration, decay. You know what we need? I said this yesterday, again didn't like it in New York, uh, oh no, the day before yesterday, sorry. Uh, we need more dogma, dogmatism. But don't be afraid, you know what I mean by this? Let's take rape. Sorry, maybe you know my line, my old example. I wouldn't like to live in a society where you have to argue all the time that women shouldn't be raped. Sorry, but I would like to live in a society where the moment a guy starts to play this disgusting game, oh, do they really don't want to be raped? raped? What if they secretly want it? The guy is just mock, he appears as an idiot, you know? The, the, the problem, I would like, and the same goes for torture. I wouldn't like to live in a society where you have to argue for or against torture. Torture should be simply the moment you say you are discreet. We need more of this, I know the paradox of the term, progressive dog dogmaticism. You know that certain things should be automatically assumed. We don't debate that.
And here, I think, the fact, again, that we are debating about all this, and things that you can say, you remember Madeleine Albright, when she made that horrible statement years ago, when a journalist asked her that in Iraq, as a result of American intervention, half a million children died. Does she think that it was worth this price? She said, yeah, it's difficult, but yes, it was worth the price. My God, that you can make such a statement. My answer to her would have been, you remember when she said, supporting Hillary, that there is a special place in hell for women who don't support other women, which meant for women who vote for, for Sanders, no? Well, I would say maybe, maybe if there is God, and if God is not totally evil, which is a matter of big debate, <laughs> maybe what there is in hell is a special place for women who claim that to bomb half a million children to death is an acceptable price. Maybe she got it wrong, what is. No, but you know, yeah. I see, was your father a secret police agent? Yeah, and you, you, you inherited his brutality. Okay, uh, I, two more questions. It's a deep In your country, Short Attila, Attila is still a normal name. <laughs> what country is this? Where Attila is still a normal name? Sorry. Short questions, please, and also please, short answers. I didn't, your pleading was not sincere enough. Sorry, please. So, um, First, I'm originally from India, and I agree with both of you what you just said. So, yeah. uh, no, but you know what's my problem in India? Ambedkar against Gandhi. I'm for Ambedkar, to make my position clear. Yeah, that's you cannot true. agree, but... No, there's another... Yeah, there's very interesting dynamics going on in India yeah, yeah. now, but I won't go into that right now. Sorry. But um, I mean, in your uh, recent book on refugees, you mentioned that uh, the, the refugee crisis is overdetermined by uh, class struggle as such. And one of the solutions is, as you say, or one of the uh, tactical solutions, solution is to some kind of organized manner in which Europe accepts refugee and... Uh, yeah, because I'm afraid, them. otherwise we get populist backlash and it's the end. That's right. uh, but what do you see in terms of this, uh, the class struggle that you think that is over-determining over uh, the refugee crisis as well as other... Well, I enumerate this in my book. First, I would say, it's clear that the ultimate cause of this refugee crisis is the way global capital functions. Here I even refer, you may remember in the book, to my half-friend, he's a right-winger, but not a stupid right-winger, we should learn from them, Peter Sloterdijk, who in his book of global capitalism used this wonderful metaphor which has a great echo in movies uh, from Wizards of, this of Cupola that global is also globus, like, uh, what do you call it in English, cupola, cupola. You know that there are those around 20% who are in, there are those who are out. And I claim this is a new form of class struggle. We have to rethink Marx here. I think that <coughs> to, be, to, put, to bring the paradox to the extreme, what for Marx was the ideal proletarian exploited? You work in a factory, you have a permanent job, okay, you are exploited, but life goes on. This is almost a privileged situation today. I think the much more crucial element of those exploited, or however you call it today, are those in so-called failed states, which never fail in themselves. 
their failure is always the result of their inclusion into global market. Like, take Congo. The tragedy of Congo is its wealth itself, coltan and all that stuff. If you, it's a tragic, crazy idea, but if somehow you make disappear all the natural resources, minerals from Congo, the war there would have been over, a plane civil war in a month or two. So, uh, uh, so what I'm saying is this, we have those who live in so-called fake states. We have, I mean, did you read, probably you did the book by Mike Davids, uh, uh, City of Courts, about how, uh, about slums, favelas. This is something very paradoxical, how more and more in our societies you have parts which are simply not fully covered by the legal order. And it's not necessarily only poverty. When I visited Brazil, I learned very interesting things, how they even have the term now favela capitalism, which means precisely because you are not constrained by any legal rules, you can do crazy, okay, brutal, but also sometimes create. So what I'm saying, and then we have, for example, precarious workers. It's not marginal. In Slovenia, my city country, almost 50% of workers are already precarious. And here we should fight ideology. Why? Because the trick of successful neoliberal ideology is that it presents you, your very new forms of slavery, as new forms of freedom. When you say, my God, I don't have a permanent job. Every year or two will I get a new contract, I'm in anxiety. Then comes somebody like Anthony Giddens and tells you, but listen, this is a new form of freedom. You are not alienated fixed into one role. Every year or second year you can reinvent yourself and so on, all that stuff. So you see my point. Uh, we, that's for me the basic paradox. The more capital is global, the more there is this invisible barrier within countries, between countries, and this is how I see basically the problem of refugees. This new global division, those who are in, those who are out, and violating, transgressing, this thing, which is getting stronger and stronger. Berlin Wall fell down, but new walls are emerging everywhere. And so I'm simply here, a uh, miracle always happens, but I no longer have this Marxist trust, you know, history moves forward. I'm much closer to Walter Benjamin here, who said, the task today is not to ride the train of history towards progress, but to put the, pull the emergency brake, you know. So again, I'm saying that uh, today, precisely with reference to problems that you mentioned, we live at an extremely interesting moment. It's the moment when in Europe and in the United States, the old logic of manufacturing consensus on how politics reproduces itself, those in power, is breaking down. That's the meaning of phenomena like in Europe or also down there, like, uh, like uh, uh, Trump, Sanders, uh, and so on. And these are very dangerous moments, but also moments of hope. This, we shouldn't be afraid of these moments. When, here I remain a Maoist, you know that wonderful saying of Mao, everything under heaven is in disorder, so the situation is excellent, you see. This is what is happening today. I mean, oh, without this, without Trump, there wouldn't have been senders. Not because they are opponents, but the same situation that, in the case of Trump, means the breakdown of this standard way how democracy 
officially reproduces itself, because that's the basic lesson. Democracy appears an abstract procedure, we vote blah blah, but we all know that this abstract procedure is embodied in very precise, unwritten rules, who decides what is admissible. It's the same paradox that I mentioned there. You are free to vote if you remain within the constraints of... And that's so interesting, that's the basic paradox. The moment people are confronted with a real choice, those in power interpret this as a crisis of democracy. Crisis of democracy are precisely moments when there is a chance that maybe democracy, the people are confronting a real choice. So if you ask me for the United States where I am, no, I cannot do that, but what I will say, no, but a part of me even says like those, uh, some of radical Bernie Sanders supporters, maybe better Trump than Hillary, you know. No, I don't be afraid, I'm not ready to do this, but just part of my heart <coughs> moving in that direction. Okay, so let's have one final question. Uh, maybe from this part. Okay, Sorry, again. Um, so I was actually just at Left Forum before we got there on Saturday, uh -huh. and then came here after to this film philosophy yeah, journal yeah. and kept yeah, having in my head this like striking difference between these two conferences. You know, this like populist American, you know, where it's like people that work very hard and and completely sort of for me non-academic context and then this this conference here. What can we do as academics to to help the leftists and the in, like the, the the populist effort? Like what should what is our role here? Uh, I'm here uh, uh, conditional pessimist, how should I put it? First, let's face it, my God. And, uh, apart from pushing for what 50 years ago would have been perceived as not even a radical, but moderate social democratic agenda, does the left has, have any concrete idea how to restructure society or whatever. That was the great tragedy and experience with Greece, as Varoufakis emphasized all the time. They were denounced at crazy, lunatic, radical left, but if you look at what Syriza demanded, it's something that 50 years ago in Europe, it would have been considered not even radical, but very moderate, centrist social democracy. And the same goes for United States, if you take into account general trends today, then I'm sorry to tell you Richard Nixon is a, a, a radical leftist. Yes, you know, this is Fred Jensen told me this. Richard Nixon is an extremely interesting figure. He was a big a jerk, whatever you want. But if you define left in a very primitive way about how much money do you give for students, for social health care, Richard Nixon was the most leftist president and he opened up with China and so on and so on. So I never, not for a second, believed in that story, uh, Watergate, you know, like, which is pure ideology. What a great country United States are. Two simple journalists can overthrow the strongest man in the world. Yes, with the help of who knows whom in the background, you know. It's, this is why, although I don't like Oliver Stone too much, I appreciate his film on Nixon, which is not just against Nixon, you know, Anthony Hopkins. It's a nice idea, okay, Hannibal Lecter as Nixon. <laughs> but, you know, it points nicely this, 
deep ambiguity of, of Nixon. Don't write Nixon simply off. It, he's, uh, so what I'm saying is that, again, okay, classical social democracy, unfortunately, because of global, the way global capitalism functions, is over. State socialism is over, although it's over in a paradoxic way. Where communists are still in power, they're usually the best managers of new capitalism. No, I claim that it's China tries, if it will, we'll see. Precise, only communist party could have done this. That's what liberals cannot accept. I knew someone, okay, I can tell you who, Wang Hui, the great Chinese social philosopher. He has some obscure connections even with the daughter of Deng Xiaoping. And he told me a wonderful story. The daughter told him that when Deng Xiaoping was dying, uh, this, all this, as kissing guys around him, flattering him, asking, what do you think your greatest act was? They thought he will say, yeah, opening China, blah, blah, reform. No, he said that when things opened, that I wasn't tempted. And now we know that almost the majority of the party was tempted by going to the end, full Western democracy. And he said it would have meant chaos. Now, it breaks my heart. I, I wrote critical texts about China. I'm now a friend of mine there told me when they translate my books that how they are censored heavily and so on. But what I'm saying is that it's very sad sign of our predicament that probably Deng Xiaoping was right. That if you want modern type, contemporary type of dynamic capitalism with stability, authoritarianism can do much better. It's very sad. So what I'm saying, ex-common, is this. Then the last surviving hope of traditional left is this endless poetry of local democracy, you know, against ossified state apparatus, representation, local communities, and so on. I am totally opposed to this. I think first for theoretical reasons, the problems we are facing today, refugees, uh, um, uh, 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 ecological catastrophes, and so on. If anything, we have to invent even larger forms, transnational forms of collective decision-making, and so on. Second thing, I think that as a model, this doesn't work. This is, again, this stupid leftist fascination with we should be engaged. Maybe I'm alienated, but I don't, know how I don't want to be too much engaged. For me, one of the visions of hell is that I live in a local community where every afternoon we have some shitty meeting, you know, <laughs> how we will distribute water, how we will educate. No, I want an efficient, anonymous, half-invisible machine which takes care of all that bullshit so that I can read my books, uh, write my books, watch movies, whatever. And uh, the, uh, so again, I think that it simply doesn't work. You know what's the truth of this? I have also connections in Venezuela, they tell me. People celebrate, oh, Chavez, wonderful. People self-organize themselves, communes, and so on. Yeah, but every good analyst knows that. The absolutely necessary obverse of this is the strong Caudillo role. You need a strong, more than democratically strong leader. You know, that's a very nice paradox, which for me is not even necessarily a bad thing. I'm here very realist, skeptical, sarcastic, cynical, whatever. I don't think that a strong leader is always necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes you need a fascination with a strong leader to, to push you to go a little bit 
further. So you see what I'm saying? I'm saying that apart from this, okay, the, the, we have two main positions today. One is the social democratic, which is let's push it further, healthcare, free education, blah, blah. And then most of the leftists adopt today an extremely tragic position. My good friend, otherwise, but here I, the, I'm not at the same Fred Jensen told me, and this is very sad, that the only thing we can do today is to push for social democratic agenda, knowing in advance that it will fail, and in this way to educate people in the long term. I find this a very tragic position. So you push for a measures which in the long term not only you know they will fail but you secretly even want them to fail so that people will get radicalized in the long term and so on and so on. Because nobody even thinks about this. Why is this tragic? Because I, okay, often people who write about this are cheap popularizers like my friend Paul Mason or Jeremiah Rifkin. But I basically agree with them. Things are happening in today's capitalism which clearly, uh, how to put it, point over, announce, point towards a dimension over market economy. The whole problem with, for example, uh, intellectual property, it's a deadlock for capitalism. It's clear that in the long term it will not work, that intellectual property is the death toll of capitalism. I mean, new forms of, are emerging of exchange, new economic, and it's but we don't know how to organize. I think this is the true problem. You know, your question, I agree with it, but there is another question hidden behind. The way you said it is as if we intellectuals know what to be done and the problem is how to reach the people. I claim, what if the people in their skepticism about us are at least partially right? What if we don't really know? Because I always like to play this role. Like, I asked Fred Jensen, fuck you, okay, what do you want? What should be done today? And immediately he starts to sweat, you know, it's a complex situation and so on. When leftists say that the situation is very complex, it means they are in deep shit already. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? On that note, <laughs> we just run out of time, so... This is typically uh, Eastern European. <laughs> What I mean, I, just to finish with this picture, I love it. There was a certain sense of sad melancholy, which was so typical of countries like Hungary, Czech Republic, Poland, and East Germany. For example, you can find it, find it on YouTube. From the darkest time of East Germany, they had a popular comedy, The Legende von Paul und Paula which is kind of a sex, okay, sex, love comedy, a woman, uh, long, uh, sorry, uh, 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 mother of a child, divorced, has an affair with another guy who's married, at the end they get together, happy ending, a kind of a, a erotic comedy. It was one of the greatest hits of German Democratic Republic. Everything clear. And, but you know what's the end of the film? Then we saw her happy, everything ends happily, walking on a Berlin street, and she enters a dark subway passage to subway, and the voiceover says she is on her way to a doctor. The doctor will inform her that she has breast cancer. She will die in three months. 
This is something so typical. You know, even in the country, starting with terror, totally out of sync with the whole atmosphere of the movie. Or, for example, the, the famous Polish proverb, uh, Christopher Zanussi made the movie on the uh, famous graffiti. It's absolutely the best definition of life, popular Polish. You know, what is life? A disease which always ends in death and which is transmitted by sex. Totally <laughs> true. That is life. But you see, I like it so much how, even if we uh, were living under the harshest of Stalinism or whatever, this spirit remains there. And maybe this is our legacy to world culture. <laughs> Excellent.